0: How Woke won the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Now on with the show.
1: You've got half the population who are not only much more interested in having casual sex, for instance, but are also bigger and stronger than the other half of the population and also don't get pregnant. So they don't suffer the consequences of it and they're much less vulnerable to sexual violence if you've got an encounter that goes wrong, right? And then the other half of the population aren't getting very much out of this, and are more at risk from violence, and are more at risk from pregnancy. And I think that if you look at it in those terms, this idea of just making everyone more free, sounds lovely, but actually what that generally results in is the strong exploiting the weak.
0: Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Louise Perry. Louise is a writer and campaigner based in the UK. She writes a column for The New Statesman and has also written for The Daily Mail, The Daily Telegraph, The Times and numerous other publications. Louise works with a campaign group, We Can't Consent to This, which monitors cases in which women have been killed as a result of what the defendant refers to as rough sex. Louise is author of the newly published book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Okay, so Louise, let's talk about the sexual revolution and your critique of the sexual revolution in your new book, your fascinating new book, which is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. And the first thing I want to ask you is, what makes your book different? If you could sum it up for listeners, because I feel like I've read critiques of the sexual revolution a few times, especially I'm just about old enough to remember them. In the 90s in particular, there was a lot of right-wing conservative criticism of... Society going to hell in a handcart, which always tended to be blamed on the bra burning excesses of those crazy kids of the 1960s. So there has been a bit of a reaction on the conservative wing of politics against the sexual revolution for quite some time. So could you just outline what is distinctive about yours and what angle you're coming at in relation to the sexual revolution?
1: So not from the religious right? (laughs) which <laughs> would be the first thing I'd say. Because, yeah, as you say, that's kind of a well-trodden argumentative path. I guess I'm sort of difficult to categorise politically in some ways. I, I work for the New Statesman. I come from the left originally. I have a vexed relationship with the left nowadays, but I still have, you know, share many of the core principles. And if anything, feel the left, is, the left has left me, um, which is a phrase we hear a lot now, huh? Mm. So... You know, a lot of what's in the book, for instance, has a really strong critique of capitalism. That is, for instance, one of my strongest arguments I make against the porn industry. Um, I mean, I don't entirely disagree with the conservative critique of all of that, but I think I am i have different priors, even if we end up reaching some of the same conclusions. And I think also, fundamentally, i I am a feminist, despite all of the kind of some of the negative associations with that term. I've spent my whole adult life working... In feminist activism of various kinds, I, my first job out of university was working at a rape crisis centre, and I've run, co-run a um, violence against women campaign for several years. It's been, it's like a really rich theme in my journalism. So, I kind of think that my like my feminist credentials are, are golden, which does make it a lot easier actually to make some of the arguments that I'm making in here. Which, which for some people will sound as though they are I'm um, like joining forces with the religious right. I really don't think I am because I think that it's almost coincidental that we end up reaching some of the same conclusions and not all of them by any means. So like there are bits in the book, there's kind kind of something in the book for everyone to hate. Um, (laughs) It's one of the wonderful things about it. So, you know, much of the the first section in particular is treading some of the same ground as what second wave feminists have been saying for many decades. Um, You know, I'm, I'm I write about porn. I write about prostitution. All this kind of stuff. But then I actually end up having, for instance, a final chapter on marriage, where I yeah. make the feminist case for marriage, which is the chapter which tends to make people the most angry. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I I I I feel as though this is what I try to do in writing it. You know, this is, in a sense, a product of like a decade of thinking and working in this area, is to try and like step out of the group think, which is such a problem if you're involved in any kind of political movement, like there's so much pressure, left, right, whatever, there's so much pressure to conform to, your, to conform to your in-group. Try and step away from that and think, what is it that is causing women misery in the 21st century? Where has this come from historically? And what would be the best solutions to it? And on an individual level, and also in, on, a, on a sort of policy level
0: um that's a very good outline and i do want to come back to the question of marriage later it's bizarre to me that being in favor of marriage is such a controversial position these days <laughs> but on sections of the left it is but i want to just dig down a little bit more with you into the question of who benefits from the sexual revolution because mm. one of the arguments you make is that men benefit from it enormously in, in many ways especially in terms of sexual gratification and the ease with which they can access those or or, or give uh, vent to those desires. But it's not an either-or situation, is it? It's not Mm. uncomplicated. So there are aspects of the sexual revolution which did favour women or did help women mm. in terms of liberating mm. them from the kind of drudgery that women had existed in for a long time up to the mid 20th century. And there's a line towards the beginning of the book, which I thought was really interesting in, look, in terms of exploring that complicated relationship between the sexual revolution and women's freedom and women's lives. And you argue that the story of the sexual revolution isn't only a story of women freed from the burdens of chastity and motherhood, although it is that, it is also a story of the triumph of the playboy. And so could you just explain, how do you understand the balance in terms of what benefit the sexual revolution had for women and what benefit it had for men?
1: So I should start by saying another way in which I am, I guess... Coming at this whole topic from an unusual perspective is, I don't believe in progress. Like in, <laughs> you know, the I find I find the whole term progressive basically nonsensical. Even if I share some of the ideas or, or goals of, of people who call themselves progressives, because I think the whole notion of history having a shape is nonsense, and the the you know the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. The, the Martin Luther, Luther King Jr. quote that Obama had put into the rug in the Oval Office because he loved it so much. I don't think that that's true. I think that history, we can chart broad trends across history and sometimes we can predict where they might continue into the future with such, some degree of accuracy. But this idea of progress, of everything just getting better and better, I think is, is just false. I think that that history just is just change for better and for worse. And it is changed largely driven by technology and particularly when it comes to feminist history. I think there's a tendency in popular feminist history to sort of fall into the great woman theory of history that it's all to do with particularly brave campaigners who've had you know particular insight and particular kind of vigor and and it's all just like them amassing success after success I mean clearly there have been some remarkable campaigners historically but I think that the washing machine has done a lot more to liberate women than has any single feminist um, or feminist group or book or anything. I think that the the key changes that we've seen to women's lives in the last 100, 200 years during which feminism has, has come into being have been to do with things like the, the internal combustion engine, the invention of baby formula, you know, all of these things which have, as you say, freed women from drudgery used to be the most amazingly time-consuming exercise running a household and it still is i mean there's still a lot of work that needs to be done primarily childcare. but it is now possible to do all sorts of things with our time that we couldn't previously do because we have um the dishwasher running in the background as i do right now so yeah so i'd I'd start with that in terms of the trying to chart the kind of success or not of the sexual revolution i mean i think that the key driving force of the sexual revolution is is the pill is that you suddenly have in the in the in the nineteen sixties this means of suspending female fertility and doing so in a way that women can control themselves. Because you've always had like forms of contraception historically, but not reliable ones. I mean, one of the points I make in the book is that the pill is not quite as reliable as people often think. And it does actually I think it's about ninety-one percent typical use effectiveness, which means about nine Women of hundred taking it in a year will get pregnant, which isn't isn't great, <laughs> but it is a historically completely unprecedented. And 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 it's that um, technology shock that I think much of what we've seen comes from. So obviously there have been thought leaders, there have been important political moments. You know things like the liberalisation of divorce laws, or you know all that kind of stuff is important. But I think that I I want to see it um, from the material perspective from, from the very beginning and yeah from that you have clearly some benefit to women I mean I think just on a personal level I I I would not want to go back to an era where you will expect to have 10 children and then die an early death you know that's not there are clearly huge blessings that have come from the technological and social changes that we've seen what I don't believe in is this idea of women's progress in a linear sense and the idea that everything has got better And what's more, the way of making things better in the future is to keep at it, you know, in terms of what we've been doing. So particularly this idea of liberation, and that what we should all be aiming for men and women alike is to be freer and freer of all the things that could constrain us. So whether that's, you know, the, the social conventions or, 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 you know, legal restrictions, I mean, we've mostly thrown off those legal restrictions, you know, women are now the first wave mostly achieved that women are now able to enter professions and take out loans and our own property and do all the things that we were historically prevented from doing but we're now getting to the point where the push for more and more and more freedom is actually kind of coming head to head with nature which turns out to be really hard to budge (laughs) and you know the pill and the bill does that to an extent you know it, it to some extent we have severed sex from reproduction and turned sex into a ledger activity that has nothing to do with has nothing to do with family formation but actually the point I'm trying to make in the book is that like that technologically enabled freedom is both really fragile and also our minds are not as malleable as are our you know modern technologically enabled lives and the problem that we've Persist in having is that even though it is now possible mostly to have consequence free sex and just sort of pursue hedonism, um, the consequences, particularly for women and also for men, are not nearly as rosy as we might have hoped, and as the sexual revolutionaries might have, might have might have hoped as well.
0: So I definitely want to come back to the question of freedom and whether freedom is the solution and whether more freedom is the solution, because I think that's probably. The part of your book that I had most difficulty with, and um I want to explore some of that in a moment, but I think one of the things I'm interested in 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 relation to the discussion of the pill, and you have this very interesting part in in the book where you uh, talk about how there has been there have been moments of sexual liberation throughout human history, of course, right, from the Roman period through to things like the Bloomsbury group in the slightly decadent early nineteen hundreds. And of course, the difference between those moments and what happened from the 1960s onwards is the pill, is the ability of women to control their reproductive system. And so where previous moments of sexual liberation tended to come up against the reality of biology and the fact that women could get pregnant and the fact that there would be all these babies and children, that didn't necessarily happen with the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And therefore, it could go further it could become a bigger thing it could become this enormous uh, revolt and um reading that part of your book and and listening to you now i wanted to ask you what your view is of the pill on balance because i think the pill uh, was a wonderful leap forward and i think about not only the often quite middle class women of the 1960s who for whom the pill was a, a means of enjoying lots of sex and, and doing whatever they wanted at university or wherever they were. But also the poorer women, the working class women who for generations had been pregnant all the time, had numerous miscarriages, stillbirths, too many children. I mean, really tough, tough lives. And the prospect of the pill and other forms of contraception in terms of genuinely liberating them from a life that No one in the 21st century would want to live. And sadly in, in parts of the world, some people still do. So on balance, isn't the pill, wasn't the pill a good thing for womankind, arguably for humankind, even if the cultural consequences of our current view of sex and our current view of human relations has become more and more problematic?
1: I think yes. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you on the point about women's lives has been completely dominated by childbearing in the past. There's a really fascinating set of, I can't remember exactly what year it's from, about 1910, this set of um, accounts that working class English women were asked to write about their lives and about their childbearing lives. And you read them and you're like, these women just spent all of their time pregnant, postpartum, or like suffering like some kind of health effects as a consequence of pregnancy. So yeah, no, yeah, no, I completely agree on that front. I think women being out of control, their fertility is it, is a huge blessing i think though that we haven't reckoned with the social consequences yet i think this is the issue that we're we're 60 years on from this incredible innovation which you know 99% plus of human history would be unimaginable and actually it's in a sense completely normalized but also in a way i think a, a the, you know the young apparently fertile woman Who is who, in fact, is not fertile. Who's been put on hold artificially, is almost a completely different creature in the world. You know that's that's such an because the social norms that we had historically around sex, which are are typically framed by feminists as as patriarchal and oppressive. You know, to do with controlling female sexuality. I mean, they they did have the function of controlling female sexuality, like for instance, taboos on premarital sex and so on. But the intention, the primary intention, was about controlling childbearing which obviously has incredibly important consequences for the community, not just for the individual. You know, if you, in a previous era, if it's impossible to, if there's no contraception available and you have a, a child born out of wedlock or to, or to a mother or to parents who like, I can't support the child, that's very consequential. You know, <laughs> that is the sort of thing that a family and a community are going to, are going to, to care about, and to be invested in because that child is under the responsibility of the whole group. So looked at in that sense, you know, obviously you would have this elaborate set of norms basically designed to like control the horniness of young people. And what the pill did is it was just about effective enough, not completely effective enough, but just about effective enough for those norms to just come crashing down within the space of like a decade. So you end up, the the shotgun marriage was like dead by the end of the 1970s because it, it didn't, it didn't have the social purpose anymore. I mean, the perverse, Effect, of course, of the pill in a weird kind of way, is a skyrocketing skyrocketing numbers of single mothers, which you wouldn't expect, right? You would think that if you you give you give women the technology to control the fertility, that why wouldn't you expect a drop in single motherhood? But you have the opposite, and I think that's because the contraception was never actually effective enough to to really sever the link between sex and reproduction. And even though decriminalised abortion offered a backup there were always women who didn't want to have an abortion for whatever reason and so you'd end up and they would then end up on on their own and and one of the sad and perverse consequences of the sexual revolution for women has been that there is now much less pressure on men to support a woman if she becomes pregnant because there is that feeling that well you know it, it is your choice you know this was your this was this was your decision to keep the baby and therefore you you have to deal with the consequences which is, I think, a really, really anti-feminist, even though, of course, that was never how, that was never how it was envisioned or designed. Yeah, this is the, one of the ways in which poor women in particular and their children have been harmed in the last 60 years.
0: Whenever I've got a spare moment, I'm always trying to discover something new or pick up a new skill. And there really is no better place to learn than Wondrium. Wondrium is the subscription video service with content on just about any topic. I just listened to a brilliant series called The Middle Ages Around the World. It's packed full of fascinating detail and surprising facts on this hugely transformative period in human history. For instance, did you know that the Americas probably had 100 million more people than Europe at the time of the high Middle Ages, or that it took around 10 peasant families to support the lifestyle of just one knight under the feudal system? Wondrium's focus is on helping us to become better versions of ourselves. You can explore its audio and video courses on hundreds of topics, all taught by top university professors. It has documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you, and it also has easy-to-follow video tutorials that can teach you new skills from photography to cooking or how to maximize your health and fitness. All of Wondrium's content is world-class and credible. It's presented by experts who know their stuff and it is always ad-free. I want you to sign up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering my listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. To get this offer, you need to visit my special URL wondrium.com slash brendan Again, that's W-O-N d-r-i-u-m dot com slash brendan sign up today um so just following on from that just sticking with the pill for another moment i wonder how fair it is to argue that the technology in some ways pushed the social uh developments and the social consequences and and Uh, Couldn't one argue that the technology, in this case the development of contraception uh, in the 50s and the 60s in particular, was expressive of a broader cultural moment, a broader political moment, a desire for change in the post-war era, a changing sense of who women are, what women, women were capable of, what women wanted to do. Uh, So is there not a danger of technological determinism in presenting the pill, uh, which is in many ways simply a medical invention, although as you say it's one that was historically unprecedented in terms of its cultural and political consequences as well as its medical uh, consequences? but wouldn't it be fairer to argue that the pill was expressive of a desire for change or a a change changes that were taking place and therefore the idea that the pill propelled things in a particular direction kind of puts the horse before the cart slightly
1: so yeah i, I don't want to uh, risk being too technologically determinist i think that it comes in concert with a lot of other changes which are also in many cases, material, economic and so on, you know. One of the things that um, I write about a lot in the book is the, the way in which a lot of 21st century feminists have underestimated the physical differences between men and women and really understate differences in, for instance, size and strength. I mean, we see this, the trans movement is the kind of logical endpoint of that kind of thinking and its most absurd manifestation And I think to some extent that's happened because one of the other important historical changes we've seen in the West in the last two generations is a move towards uh, the move away from people using their physical labor economically. Like male physical strength used to be of such immense economic importance and now just isn't really because we have machines to do it instead. And actually we also have increasingly a shift towards knowledge economy towards a service economy, you know, all of which women can participate in on completely equal terms with men, you know, a male knowledge worker and a female knowledge worker are pretty much interchangeable right up until the moment where the woman has a baby, you know, I mean, because of course the gender pay gap is actually a motherhood gap, but until you know, young childless people working on their laptops, who cares if they're male or female, right? So I think that you know, you can now live a life, if you are a member of the laptop class, as we both are, you can now live a life where you really, your sex has very little impact on you. You know, you can choose not to have children or delay having children. You can do exactly the same work as a man. You can, you know, particularly now with shrinking family sizes, you might never have even play, you know, done play fighting with siblings of the opposite sex. You might never have discovered quite how profound physical differences are between um girls and boys after puberty and so it can seem as if like these differences are immaterial or even old fashioned or even irrational or whatever you know and so why not for instance have men competing in women's sports or all, all these like crazy proposals that you hear <laughs> coming out of coming out of uh liberal feminist mouths and i guess that is in a sense a, a consequence of of profound material changes which of course aren't going back i mean this is the other thing i want to say like I have a a strong critique of the sexual revolution, but I don't think it can be undone, and I don't think that actually we would want it to be either. I think what what I'm what I'm calling for is a kind of attempt to negotiate with its effects, not to undo them.
0: Yeah. Yes, and you make it very clear in the book that this is not an argument for going back to the nineteen fifties or the 1940s, or, or periods in which life was difficult for many women and many men in terms of the economic situation and the social situation and so on. Okay, well, let's talk about, I think, for me, the parts of the book that really rang incredibly true and felt very pertinent were, I guess it's the kind of thing you touched upon uh, at the start, which is your feeling that the left has left you in terms of the left going in a particular direction, particularly on issues around sex and sex positive feminism and being pro-prostitution and all these other ideas that uh, sections of the left, the liberal left and and the supposedly radical left have embraced in a way that I just find incredibly bizarre and chilling and ridiculous. And um, I want to start off by asking you about the porn industry first, and and you write about this. And one of the biggest problems, I think, is the way in which porn saturates a lot of people's lives. It's incredibly accessible. It's on every gadget that we have these days at the click of a button. But alongside that industrialization of pornography, you have something that in some ways is even worse, which is the cultural validation of pornography as a positive thing, as a a wonderfully expressive thing, as something that is actually fine and a useful tool for sexual gratification. And feminists like you who say, hold on, it's a problem and it's abusive to women, you will be called prudes, frigid, reactionaries. I mean, these are the kind of words that are used. So how do you think that has come about, where we now have a situation where something which would have been relatively universally looked upon at least as problematic just a few decades ago, i.e. pornography, has now come to be celebrated as a a positive contribution to human life.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the hypocrisy is is startling (laughs) from the left on this. I I assume what's happening is that like, yes, the left have a critique of capitalism. Like, yes, there's, you know, recognition that c- corporations are, can can have this really sort of deleterious effect on people's lives. But I think the primary goal is the tearing down of the bourgeois sexual norms. And the anti-porn view is so strongly associated with religious right that a lot of people on the left are just scared of touching it. I mean, there has always been a strong seam of left-wing feminism that has has not felt that way. And in terms of the history of history of it, I mean, I was, there's a, I have invariably been described as the new Mary Whitehouse, right, in coverage of this. And, uh, which I, I, you know, I take with a smile, but is, I think, yeah, you know, I think inaccurate for various reasons. But there was a really interesting, um, BBC documentary about Mary Whitehouse on recently. And there's this great footage of her speaking at the Cambridge Union in, I think, the early 1980s. And she says that she makes the point about porn being, abusive to women and so on and the students jeer at her so even then you know this is this this was this was kind of the mainstream view that like how can you be such a pretty, Blah 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 i think if anything actually it's probably just in recent years that the the problematic nature of porn is possibly becoming more mainstream because i think that it coming online has changed it profoundly i think that the porn industry now is a completely different beast from the dirty magazines of the 70s that Mary Whitehouse was familiar with. Um, I mean, I actually spoke at the Oxford Union earlier this year on porn and won the debate, surprisingly. I was really, really surprised by that. But it seemed that actually the students were, were did agree that there was something wrong with the porn industry. And it's interesting that actually Gen Z, who are the generation who've grown up with porn in their bedrooms from adolescence or on their phones, I think that they t- seem to be more receptive to the criticisms of it than maybe millennials, who possibly, I think millennials, the millennial generation is probably the high watermark of sexual, sexual liberation. So yeah, I think maybe that might be moving a little bit, therefore, but I mean, in- it is absolutely stunning, though, the extent to which the, the the porn industry has been able to just invade our invade our lives collectively. I mean, even if you don't watch porn yourself, which is surprisingly high proportion of people don't, including including even young men. You know, there's this there's this misconception that absolutely everyone watches it. It's not true. There is always a good chunk of people who don't. But you know, even then, you it the thing about sexual relationships is that they're networked. Sex is a re- sex is a relational act inherently. Right, you do it with other people. And so it means that you can't just understand this in terms of individual choice and in terms of, you know, us as kind of like atomized individuals, just like bumping into each other. Like this is, this is a culture. And if you are, um, bringing a generation of people up on porn and if it's, you know, forming the sexual identities of everyone consuming it. How could that not be having a profound effect on on, on you know on everyone's sexual relationships? Um, and I, the the perverse thing about it is that you you've got you know the, the second wave feminists who I some of whom I write about in the book like Dworkin and so on they were right about a lot and they were prescient in many ways, but something they didn't actually predict interestingly is that one consequence of porn saturation in the culture we people having less sex, so you've got what's called the what was called till recently the sex recession I think it's been going on so long now it's probably the sex depression where you have you know an amazing number of people in their 20s who remain virgins everyone pretty much having less sex than previously I mean it's partly a consequence of people not getting married um, because despite you know popular misconception married people actually have more sex than unmarried people but you are seeing this huge slump in the amount of like real life sex that people are having, combined with a huge acceleration in the amount of porn that people are using. Include, I mean, I mean, a minority of men use the most use, like watch porn to so much it's amazing, like hours and hours a week. And they they are like, this is you know, this is the point that I want to make about some of this being bad for men as well. Like that is not a happy group of men. That is that that is not a good way to be spending your life, and it has really catastrophic effects on relationships on your physical health. I mean, the, the, the explosion in erectile dysfunction within the last 20 years is absolutely stunning. It used to be a really rare phenomenon among young men. And now, I don't know if you've noticed the re- like erectile dysfunction ads on the tube and stuff, because it's become that common. And some of it might be to do with things like um, estrogens in the environment and so on. But it, anecdotally, it seems that it's very often associated with compulsive porn use and quitting porn tends to cure it and there are online communities like nofap which are devoted to exactly this trying to like free your mind from porn because it is the most the product is absolutely tailor-made to be as compulsive as possible you know that it has been beautifully designed um by the titans of the porn industry to be a super stimulus as biologists call it. So it's a it's like a, a stimulus that does appear in the natural environment and which appeals to us for obvious evolutionary reasons, but it's like supercharged in every possible way to make it as, as appealing as possible to the consumer to the point where you don't... I think it's kind of stupid to think of this in terms of anything rational or, you know, political even. Like this is just a product which has been designed. It's like I compare it to McDonald's and in the in the book um it's designed to be as appealing and addictive as, as it possibly can be and it's been put in children's phones you know um and you've got 10 year olds watching this stuff routinely and stuff you know I, I i i don't think it makes me mary whitehouse to be concerned about that <laughs> and actually if you read polling particularly of parents like the concern is really widespread the challenge is partly what to do about it practically is just you know, how do you regulate these platforms which have have proved completely incapable of regulating themselves? So that's one. And the other is that you do have this very vocal lobby suppress any kind of criticism of this industry as being inherently authoritarian, religious, you know, whatever insult they want to throw. And unfortunately, the, like that lobby have been extraordinarily successful with the liberal left.
0: I think... One of the things that's always struck me is the shift from porn shame to porn pride, which suggests that there is a very strong cultural component to this. Something has happened over the past 30 years where not only has porn become far more commonplace and accessible, but also it's been attended by a cultural dynamic which has shifted the view of porn from something dirty, you put it in a brown paper bag, you hide it behind a tree, you don't bring it home, to something which you can actually be quite proud of using and proud of doing, in fact. So I remember when I was a kid seeing a gentleman I we knew who didn't live anywhere near us, but he was in our local corner shop buying, and I saw him buying one of the magazines from the top shelf, and he'd obviously travelled a very long distance in order to buy one of these magazines because he presumably didn't want anyone he knows to see him. And you fast forward 30 years or so, and you have people on OnlyFans, Making pornography, uh, telling a sympathetic BBC that if they lose their ability to do that, they will lose their income and, and the BBC then the public broadcaster treats them sympathetically, and you just think there 's been some incredible turnaround in this discussion, which really does need untangling and that brings me on to a question I wanted to ask you, which I guess is a bit of a chicken and egg question in some ways, but you talked there about the sexual problems people are having, how unhealthy it is for that small number of young men, relatively speaking, who look at porn for hours and hours every week. I want to ask you whether that crisis of intimacy, I guess, or that uh, the uh, sex depression, the sex recession, you know, what comes first? is it the industrialization of porn or is it the crisis of intimacy? So in other words, is the industrialization of porn a response to changes that were taking place in society anyway, in which there was a growing sense of alienation, a growing fear of intimacy, a fear of developing relationships, and in some cases, a fear of the emotional intensity of a sexual relationship in particular. So porn kind of fills that gap and becomes a way of having sexual gratification at a distance. So you can do it on your own and it's a computer screen. And it's a TV screen and you don't have to worry about other people. Or is, or are all those problems of intimacy and sexual connection and loving relations between individuals? Are they caused by the growth of porn? So uh, I know that's a bit of a chicken and egg question, but I think it's an important one in terms of trying to understand the impact of the sexual revolution and the impact of other things alongside the sexual revolution in terms of creating the slightly strange culture we inhabit today.
1: Yeah, I think, so I think, there is, I think there is a chicken and egg element to it. Um, and porn does, one of the consequences of declining marriage, and you know, in a positive way, the fact that now women are, it's much easier for women to be financially independent, to choose not to get married, to choose not to have children, And you particularly see this phenomenon of women who are high earning, really well educated and so on, who are either deliberately foregoing marriage and children or struggling to find a partner of a sort of similarly high status uh, to marry. And so you end up with this kind of new groups of single, both single men and single women who don't have partners for various reasons, sometimes by choice, sometimes not, the obvious word. To bring up here is incels, incel movement, men who struggle to find partners for various reasons, which are not necessarily their fault. Sometimes it is. And for them, yeah, I mean, porn is like an obvious source of solace and release. I mean, the next step in this, I write about this briefly in the book, is um, sex robots, which are already coming on the market to some extent. I mean, the thing that I think is... Troubling about sex robots. I mean, it's partly this problem of sort of, which porn does as well, where it potentially trains the user's mind to sort of regard sexual partners as being inanimate and and and, and potentially encourages um, violence and cruelty and so on. So there's that component of it, which I think is troubling and which feminists are concerned about but i think also the risk of some of these young men who possibly with a different incentive structure and 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 like different opportunities available to them could live flourishing productive lives and have and have families and have have healthy sexual relationships who risk ending up in this dead end presented by technology because it is so much easier to watch porn or to have sex with your sex robot than to actually go out and take risks and and to attempt to form a relationship with another human being with all of its inevitable um difficulties and and disappointments and one of the good things for so in the last chapter when I write about marriage I write about the fact that my degree was in my first degree was in anthropology so I I'm kind of drawing from that even though of course I wasn't taught any of this in my anthropology degree but the monogamous marriage systems are really successful in terms of if you look at societies that have them um, as we did until recently I mean we, we do in the sense that we don't have we don't permit polygamy legally but we you know in practice it's, it's now it's 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 now pretty much pretty much being killed off by the sexual revolution but monogamous The monogamous marriage model is really successful and the reason it seems to be really successful and it seems to produce really productive, wealthy, safe societies is because basically all other societies are polygamous where you have um, high status men taking multiple wives and low status men normally remaining unmarried. You end up with the high status men accumulating loads of wives and then you have this kind of class of unmarried men who are low status and resentful. And sexually frustrated, and often turn to crime. So you have you, these societies tend to be more unstable, more violent. Um, as a consequence of that, you also in those societies tend to have a lot more domestic abuse and conflict within households because co-wives often don't get on. There's a lot of child abuse directed at the children of co-wives, etc. Like there are all sorts of ways in which bad. What mon- what a monogamous marriage system does is it encourages all men to make themselves marriage worthy which actually is a really effective way of taming men and giving them and 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 taking the like the male libido and male energy and all the kind of like all of the energies of young men which are both potentially dangerous potentially unstable but also potentially very productive and pro social you channel those energies towards the things you need in order to get sex basically which is you know, get a job, get a house, don't commit any crimes, you know, put all of your energies towards um, becoming a, becoming a husband and father. And, you know, if you remove that incentive and, and you can like soothe those parts of your brain with sex robots and video games and junk food and, you know, all this stuff like these, these young men are generally not, necessarily being violent, not necessarily going out committing crimes with some like notable exceptions, but they're also not making themselves into happy healthy members of society. So the the risk with these new technologies for these young men is that they end up just in this like complete evolutionary dead end.
0: Spiked is launching an internship program. We're offering paid placements to aspiring writers, podcasters, and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the best political magazine in the world. You'll work with Spiked full-time for six months in London starting this July. And there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'd help us to produce our articles, features, and essays. Or an audio-visual internship where you'd help us to produce our videos and podcasts like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com slash interns. That's spiked-online.com slash interns. I, I really agree. And I think one of the things that worries me most about contemporary society is that we seem to have abandoned the project of turning boys into gentlemen, which was such a central part of many, many forms of human society in recent centuries. And that project seems to have been abandoned. And I think that's a real problem and will store up problems for the future. Following along from some of the comments you've just made there, I want to ask you about sex positive feminism, um, which you write about in the book, and. It sounds nice. It's got the word positive in it. It's got (laughs) the word feminism in it. It's got the word sex in it. I mean, all three of these are not bad things. But it is obviously, as you know better than most, a a, a problematic idea and a problematic Mm. ideology. But one thing I wanted to ask you as a way into talking about sex-positive feminism is, I guess, the question of whether they are really positive about sex. Because I always think one of my favorite views on the new forms of sex um from the 60s onwards comes from christopher lash in his book culture of narcissism in 1979 where he talks about he talks about how the sexual revolution or the the idea of sex without romance sex without attachment it looked very progressive but he said it often masked a desire to divest sex of the emotional intensity that unavoidably clings to it so he was arguing that in many ways this this culture that was like yeah we love sex we're going to have as much as possible as many partners as we can looked very pro-sex but it was actually about withdrawing from sex it's most potent energy that sense of connection you can get that sense sense of relating to someone in an incredibly intimate way and of course possibly staying with that person for a very long time so isn't there a case well firstly i guess there's two parts to this question how do you understand sex positive feminism how do you describe it and isn't there an argument for taking back that notion of sex positivity from people who actually put forward a really degraded view of sexual relations and what they mean—really,
1: very consumerist view, right? Like going back to the, the capitalist connection, that because yeah, it, it is basically regarding sexual partners as just objects to be shopped for, and and particularly with the way that dating apps are now designed, that it really does feel like shopping. It's like being on the the ASOS app or something you know you just kind of swipe through and like select your purchase which yeah i agree is is anti-sex in a way is it is truly sex negative in a way so uh, what sex positive feminism means in theory it's about challenging kind of traditional notions of shame and repression in relation to sex and the, the 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 argument is that there's nothing sort of inherently we should regard all like all kind of sexual desire as sort of potentially positive as long as everyone's consenting we shouldn't have these kind of irrational traditional like hierarchies of of value in relation to particular desires or particular sex acts or whatever which as you say sounds very nice um the problem i think that you get to with straight people specifically is that male and female sexuality don't match quite at the population level so uh, this is like really, this is a historically really controversial thing to say within feminism, but I think that there just isn't, this, the evidence for it is so strong. There are ways in which men and women are psychologically different from each other on average. Okay, so this is, obviously there are individuals who can be really not conformed to this rule at all. And on an individual level, you can't know, if you know someone's sex, you can't necessarily know their personality. You know, we all know this just from looking at people around us. But there are some average differences between men and women, which are quite profound. And one of the ones that is most important for my purposes is that men are much more interested in sexual variety than women are. It's a trait that psychologists call sociosexuality. So they're much more interested in casual sex, in um, buying sex, in watching porn, in fetishes, you know, all kinds of stuff, which have been... Become much more socially acceptable post sexual revolution, and this has been presented, I think, wrongly by sex positive feminists as being like a gender neutral thing that we we're just we're just liberating everyone's sexual desires. But the problem is that actually the people they're primarily liberating are are, are, are disproportionately men, and in order to enact their desires, they invariably need women. You know, so you end up with this mismatch where the in order to meet the demand for casual sex that the horniest end of the male population demand, women need to women need to, to, to take part as well, right? So basically, the, the whole sex positive project has been, I think, about trying to persuade women to imitate male sexuality, and women actually mostly don't want that. Like most women, if you if you if you ask in polling or whatever, say that they would much rather have a committed relationship that um, they're not actually really interested in casual sex. They don't really enjoy it. They don't generally orgasm from it. And you can actually see this really interestingly if you look at university campuses because they're kind of a like a relatively closed environment. And on campuses where women outnumber men and therefore there's more competition for male partners, there tends to be more hookup culture because it's the minority of men who are able to, to like, you know, determine the market basically and then in campuses where you've got more men than women you get the opposite you have more monogamy and more stability and whatever because that's actually the female preference at the population level obviously not to say that there are not exceptions to this obviously you know I, I have to keep saying this because you know, it's true and also it's because I I get criticized otherwise but like the hookup culture at the population level does not suit female interests and yet it's been represented by feminists as being an ideal that we should all be striving for as a way of liberating womankind. I mean, the problem with the li- liberation, just like pressing the liberation lever again and again and again, is that it's not a level playing field. Like you've got, you've got half the population who are not only much more interested in having casual sex, for instance, but are also bigger and stronger than the other half of the population and also don't get pregnant. So they don't suffer the consequences of it and they're much less vulnerable to sexual violence if you've got an encounter that goes wrong, right? And then the other half of the population aren't getting very much out of this and are more at risk from violence and are more at risk from pregnancy. And I think that if you look at it in those terms, this idea of just making everyone more free sounds lovely, but actually what that generally results in is the strong exploiting the weak I mean we know this if we're talking about something like deregulation of the labor market like you can't just prescribe more and more freedom and ex- expect it all to come right because obviously there are some agents who have more power than others and and, 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 and so the risk for exploitation becomes becomes much greater I mean and and any of you combine thinking about poverty as well as sex you end up with with prostitution I mean I think the women who've suffered the most from the sexual revolution are poor women definitely.
0: Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you now about prostitution or sex work, as we are forced to call it these days, if you want to be uh, welcome in polite society, you would no doubt be referred to as a swarf, a sex worker, exclusionary, times, radical, yeah. feminist. And I think in relation to the question of what freedom means today under this new ideology, I think prostitution is actually a good example of where that understanding of freedom has gone wrong. Because... Even though I do think that everyone makes choices, even if they make them in conditions not of their choosing. And there's always an element of choice, even if you're under extraordinary pressure, living in poverty. Having said that, I do think the notion that it is a liberatory experience to um, sell your body to other to men who want sexual gratification, I think is utterly preposterous. And to present something like that as an experience of liberation completely sells out the women who are engaged in this industry and demeans the notion of what it means to be a free individual who is living his or her life to the best that they can. But in relation to prostitution, the one thing that strikes me is that This is where there is a strong class component um, to lots of these discussions. And you do talk about that in the book as well. And you talk about, for example, the way in which intersectional feminism, as it's often called, is actually not particularly intersectional and will often ignore issues of economic class. And if I hear one more plummy, upper-middle-class graduate who was a prostitute for a year at university talking about how wonderful sex work is and how it's the same as having any other kind of retail job or office job, I will go mad because obviously for the vast majority of women engaged in prostitution, it is a desperate measure. It is because they don't have other means of income. It is because they are incredibly hard up and they're having a very difficult experience. So isn't there isn't part of this, particularly in relation to prostitution, just a grotesque betrayal of poorer women in particular by those who have bought into what is referred to as sex positive ideology who tend to come from the other side of the tracks.
1: Yeah absolutely it's been going on for a long time I was surprised actually to look back at some of the earlier writing on this and even in like the 70s and 80s you've got these upper middle class women talking about how much they love being like dominatrixes or whatever. I mean, normally they're not actually doing, they're not street walking, they're not working in brothels, right? They're doing OnlyFans or sort of similar kind of non-contact stuff, which is not great, but it's clearly a completely different, completely different ball game from having sex with like a dozen men a night. Yeah, I mean I think that this becomes the the hypocrisy I think becomes really clear when you look at other like counterparts where Counterpart examples where where you know no one no one thinks that se- that, that that sex work is liberating. I mean, it's something like the sex for rent, which has been a kind of ongoing political discussion point, particularly during COVID um, and general cost of living crises, where you you have landlords advertising rooms in return for sexual favors. I've not, I can't find anyone who thinks that's, that's okay, right? Like every political party is united in thinking that that's appalling. It's obviously, uh, you know, it's obviously exploitative. It's obviously taking advantage of desperate women. These guys are obviously creepy. They need to be criminalised whatever, you know. Labour Party Lib Dems, Greens, they all support legislation to specifically ban this. Um, It probably, I mean, it's already sort of partially illegal, but they, they, they want a kind of bespoke offence. And no one seems to <laughs> these are all parties, like Lib Dems and Greens in particular are, are, are explicit in supporting the decriminalization of sex work. Jeremy Corbyn said that he thought that decriminalizing sex work would be a more civilized option when he was leader of the Labour Party. Like, why do they not apply this to sex for rent? Because it's exactly the same thing. Like why would why would rent and, or just cash be any different? And to be honest, I think the answer is that like sex for rent seems to be something that might affect middle-class women because we've got a cost of living crisis which is and the housing crisis which means that a lot of particularly say like students are feeling hard up and many of the cases that have been advertised in the press have been in university towns so like an article about you know landlords in Oxford for instance or Bristol advertising these kind of arrangements I think honestly people read about this and they think of their own middle-class daughters and they feel appalled because prostitution generally is one of these things that doesn't really only affects the poorest women and the poorest women also have the very, very worst experience of it because, it, you know, it is a spectrum. Like OnlyFans is clearly qualitatively very different from being like a trafficked migrant, say. And what's weird about it is normally the left are supposed to be most interested in advocating for the interests of people who are suffering the most, you know. We talk about the poorest people, we talk about, you know, the workers, the marginalised, whatever, and yet bizarrely, in this situation, it's kind of flipped around. And the people who get the most airtime and who have the most power to set the the policy agenda are the are the people who are who are relatively the most privileged. You know, the, the women with PhDs who are working as a cam girl on the side are bizarrely given so much more attention than um, women who've been streetwalkers or whatever. I mean, part of what's going on there is that. Kind of like by definition, if you are currently in prostitution, you're probably not going to be like writing in the Guardian. You're probably not going to be even like using Twitter or anything. Like the chances are, you're not going to be participating in in, in public life or in public discussion. And what of the the there's this absolutely fantastic organisation called Space International, which is women who have experienced the sex trade directly and not just cam girling right have experienced brothel and street-based prostitution who now campaign for the nordic model so the nordic model is when you you decriminalize people who sell sex and you criminalize people who buy it which is the model that i think it probably is most effective in terms of like helping the women actually in it and they get criticized because they've left the sex industry <laughs> and so they're t- there's so their their critics say, oh, you, you know, what do you know? You don't do it anymore. And they're like, well, obviously I don't do it anymore <laughs> because I wasn't going to be like showing up in Westminster and speaking to MPs when I was like selling blowjobs for twenty pounds, you know, when I was like a tr- like a like a abused teenage girl, you know, of, uh, like the often women who are in the sex trade are like really young, don't speak English. I mean, it's just absurd to think that that they're being properly represented by. Yeah, tourists,
0: to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I really agree with that. And, you know, those well-educated women, um, because there are a number of women who do defend sex work as a a positive thing, as a useful thing, one of the arguments they make is, of course, that it's like other forms of work, and working in Tesco is is a bit boring too and weird and exploitative, and working in a factory is exploitative. There's no difference between that and having sex with someone, which is obviously completely preposterous. And if in the newspaper office that they work in, or the think tank office that they work in, it, the the job included giving the boss a blowjob at the end of the day, we would all recognise that yeah. as being completely yeah. grotesque and unacceptable. And yet yeah. they write about other women who who do that as a positive thing. So it seems to me to really touch upon the class component to some of this um, ideology and and. And really exposes that in, in a very clear way. But it brings me on to, I guess, uh, just to cut, bring the discussion to a close with probably my most important question. I've left it rather too late. <laughs> but I, I do want to ask you, I really enjoyed your book and I think it's got some great insights. But the one thing I bristled at to a certain extent was the um, the argument which there's a thread in the book about how the solution that is often put forward by um, contemporary feminists uh, and other people on the woke side of politics, for want of a better word, is more liberation. Liberation upon liberation. Pull the liberation lever, as you say. More freedom, that's the answer to all the problems that we face. And it got me thinking that halfway through the book, I thought, oh no, is freedom a bad thing? And so the the question I wanted to put to you is isn't it really the case that none of this stuff is actually freedom? And shouldn't we reclaim the word freedom from these people? And just to go back to Lash Mm -hmm. again, he talks about how at the end of the 60s and in the 1970s, after the sexual revolution, he talked about how it didn't give rise to the liberated individual, but rather to the weak self, the minimal self, the self that constantly requires an admiring audience. And he argued that that actually locks you into an illiberal relationship with society because you are constantly needing validation, you're constantly requiring the approval of others. Mm-hmm. And that directly impacts on your ability to be, I guess, a robust, free individual making choices and living uh in the way that you think is best for yourself and your community. So isn't that what we have here? Whether we're talking about OnlyFans, social media culture very isolated young men who are masturbating to terrible things online. The idea that prostitution is a positive or can be a positive thing. None of this, I would say, is freedom. It is all an expression of that minimalized self, that isolated self, that that weak self, which has been dislocated from the old values of freedom. So, that was the question I wanted to put to you. To, to what extent can this really... I don't think these people live very freely, and I don't think they have a free life. And shouldn't we reclaim the virtue of freedom from those people who misuse the word?
1: Yeah, interesting question. So I think freedom is really, really hard to retain for human beings because we are socially... because we're social animals, right? One of the things I write about at the beginning of the book is this, the 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 idea of liberalism writ large and the kind of relationship between the economy and liberalism. And I I write about theorists like Patrick Deneen, who see the free market and social liberalism as actually very closely linked, because if you want to maximise economic growth, workers who are not tied down by, say, family obligations or by wanting to live in a particular place or by having some sort of cultural or religious, like, impediments to doing particular work, or whatever, are great workers because you can send them anywhere, you can make them work whenever you want, you know. Like, it's not being tied down, being free, I suppose, in a sense, um, really serves the interests of the market. I mean, one of the things that Lash also writes about is the extent to which, as institutions that used to be very powerful... The church, in particular, and the family and the community, as those institutions have retreated, what you've ended up with is this vacuum where people actually are desperately in need of a church, a community, a family, or whatever, and they've either filled it with the with with the market, you know, that we've got products that can kind of provide that feeling, or the state has stepped in. But actually, neither the market nor the state are good at fulfilling those functions. So you end up with this horrible kind of like fake version of of what we of what of what has retreated and i think that does seem to suggest to an extent that like it's not that freedom is bad necessarily it's that it's very hard to maximize individual freedom and also actually provide the what we need to live as human beings you know we need other people in order to live flourishing lives you know and to an extent, having any relationship with anyone, particularly the kind of unchosen bond, which is actually the most important and strongest bond in most people's lives. You know, having our having relationship with parents and siblings and children and, and spouses are onerous and are um, they, t- you know, they tie us down, they restrict us, they stop us from doing things, they limit us in all sorts of ways, but they're also absolutely essential in order to live as like a happy and sane human being. And you could be free by like throwing them off and not having not having any link to anyone or anything. But would that actually be a worthy goal? It's not that freedom is bad. It's just that it does need to be balanced against these other things if we're going to live flourishing lives.
0: Yeah, I guess, yes. And I think the distinction I would make, I suppose, is the difference between the genuinely free individual who's taking responsibility for his or her life and his or her life choices who I think tends to be the kind of person who is more likely then to want to contribute to a community or a society because you have that sense of confidence, that sense of drive, that sense of responsibility against... So you have individual freedom in that sense against the cult of individuation, atomization, the the contemporary notion that freedom means throwing off every shackle and being all in it for yourself which I think is is narcissism rather than individualism and ends up being a cultural prison rather than being freedom. So I, I think that's a, an interesting discussion to be had about what freedom means. But I really agree with Lash's point and your point there about the market and and um, the market is is the thing that is probably most often presented to us as freedom these days, the free market, the freedom to travel from one place to another, not to live in a fixed abode, to be flexible workers, which is experienced by most people as unfreedom in many different ways. My final question for you is on marriage. I really like the conclusion to the book. Uh, well, the, the the final chapter is a defense of marriage. The conclusion to the book is called <laughs> Listen to Your Mother, which I think is great advice for everyone, for most people. In relation to marriage, you talk about the fact that there were um, earlier feminists who were pretty anti-marriage, Andrea Dworkin, Jermaine Greer, I mean, some feminists talked about the abolition of marriage, and they could only conceive of it as uh, a situation where a woman was given from one man to another. And obviously, there was a history of that uh, before modern times. This is another case, isn't it, where I think very often you have people from a certain section of society looking down their noses at marriage without appreciating that for most people, being brought up in a stable household by a mother and a father who have a fairly good relationship and are able to bring their children up within a stable family, within a community setting. Marriage often feeds very much into community. All of that's very important. And shouldn't people, I guess, on your side of politics, you don't like the word progressive, I was about to call you a progressive, but shouldn't people on your side of politics who are interested in women's rights, women's fortunes and children having happy lives, shouldn't there be a clearer case for marriage rather than the kind of slightly trendy suspicion of marriage that we often see in sections of the left today?
1: Yeah, I mean, so marriage has become a luxury good, right? If you look at the spread of it across the population, rich people... Might not publicly support marriage as an ideal, but they love getting married. They love staying married. And actually, the people yeah, who are least likely yeah. to get married and stay married are poor people, who are who are, you know partly are being affected by policies that have been designed by people in power um, who enjoy it for themselves but don't want to design policies that promote stable marriages. Yeah, I mean that the evidence is so clear that it is by far the best environment into which to bring up children. And I I write in the book that I don't think it's a coincidence that the 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 feminists who historically have been most opposed to marriage did not have children themselves almost always, because actually you realise I mean I had I had a bit of my first baby during the writing of this book and like the heavily pregnant postpartum mother and child are so vulnerable you know it is such a so you know two mother and baby are so tightly bound together physically and emotionally. And are so desperately in need of the support of other adults. I mean, even more so in previous periods of history where life was much pro- more precarious. But even now, I mean, you 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 have to be supported by somebody else during that period. You know, whether that's directly supported by family or spouse or whatever, or or, or supported by the state, someone has to do it. You know, and so like feminists and other. Um, utopians have tried to come up with like various other ways of like solving this problem whether through communal child rearing or socialized systems where the state provides universal daycare or or benefits or whatever you know whatever it is to try and like plug that gap but none of them have been very successful I mean actually the most the, the most successful system is two parents They don't have to be opposite sex you know they can be they can be same-sex couple. But having one another person in the family who is who is devoted to providing the financial, social, emotional needs of the mother baby unit, you can't just get rid of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can choose not to have children. I, I genuinely think that if people don't want to have children, don't have children, I think like marriage doesn't serve an obvious purpose for those people. It, like there can be some, there can be some advantages in terms of, you know, your own kind of um, emotional well-being and so on, but it doesn't serve like an obvious practical purpose. But when it comes to child rearing, it's invaluable. And you can recreate it with cohabitation. And, you know, the, you don't have as many rights as a cohabiting couple in this country as you do if you're a married couple. But cohabiting couples are much more likely to split than a married couple's. Like the the, if, if the incentive is there to to stay together um, for the sake of the family unit, barring obviously there, there are obviously lots of cases or some cases where people, you know, marriages need to end, there are terrible marriages, abuse, whatever, obviously, yes. But, you know, in most cases, where the reasons people might drift apart are not to do with abuse, they're just to do with, you know, getting bored of each other, you know, losing the spark, all this kind of stuff. The instinct in a hedonistic culture, which says that you should just prioritize your own desire at all times, and that the most important thing is your own self-fulfillment, is to throw it away. And actually, I think that down the line for that individual and so much more importantly for children that's a really destructive instinct and actually the stability that comes with with committing to someone for life and actually meaning it is so important and I think I think yeah I think it is a mistake for feminism to try and do away with marriage because it does it did historically as you say you know was about fathers giving their daughters to husbands and all of this like and there are and there are various things in the traditional marriage service which i don't like and didn't have in our marriage in our wedding service but actually the core thing which is about legally binding parents to each other and to their children that you can't just get rid of without really serious consequences
0: louise thank you very much
1: thank you so much brendan